Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 500 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones archived in various ways. You'll also see a few other things such as a link to an audio podcast and email notification of future interviews and things like that. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it um, to any degree, uh, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. My guest today is someone whom I've been aware of for quite some time and have been wanting to interview, Anna Breitenbach. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Good to be here. Anna is a South African-based professional animal communicator. She's going to explain what that means in a few minutes. Um, She's been practicing this art for 18 years in South Africa, Europe, and the U.S. with both domestic and wild animals. She was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa, where she is now, and she holds a degree in psychology, economics, and marketing from the University of Cape Town. She was trained in tracking and mentoring at the Wilderness Awareness School in the U.S., and she also mentors children and adults in nature awareness based on the ways of the Native American and San Bushman peoples. Anna is a qualified and experienced master training facilitator focusing on bringing forth participants' skills through coaching and mentoring in a practical manner. She consults exclusively with wildlife and offers workshops around Southern Africa occasionally touring Australia, Europe, and the U.S. She travels a lot. (laughs) Her work includes working with wild dolphins and whales, leading animal communication safaris, interspecies projects at permaculture and organic farms, and giving numerous public talks. Her pro bono work focuses on conservation projects such as elephant management, anti-poaching assistance, baboon rehabilitation, whale and dolphin research, and predator conservation. Is also the subject of the feature documentary movie, The Animal Communicator on Interspecies Communication. And incidentally, I'll link to, there have been some lovely um, documentaries and videos of Anna's work um, posted on YouTube, and I'll link to several of those on her page on batgap.com. I highly recommend that you watch those since she may not be communicating with any animals during this interview other than me, but it's beautiful to watch her do her, her work. So some of you may be wondering now, is this Buddha at the gas pump? What does this have to do with spiritual awakening, the usual types of themes that you discuss on this show? And I think Anna can give us a very good answer to that. So maybe in one go, let me ask you two questions. What is animal communication and what is its spiritual significance? Why should people who are interested in enlightenment and awakening and all that stuff be interested in animal communication? Well, Animal or interspecies communication really is the term that's come to be used to to describe the energetic transference of direct knowing and of shared experience. And usually the setup is that that happens between two beings who are focused on each other and connecting in a state of empathy to be able to understand and really deeply understand each other. Another way to describe it using more technical language would be telepathic communication, which has been well described and in fact researched between humans since the 1880s in both the UK and the US. And in more recent decades, the scientist Rupert Sheldrake 
proved telepathy between animals and humans, specifically people and their dogs. And his experiments and his books about it and the various things available online to watch as well are to do with that. The title of his study was uh, Dogs Who Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Rupert was on the show a couple months ago. We talked about that a little bit. Brilliant. Brilliant. So with all of that empirical experiment design, it's been proved beyond statistical probability or guesswork alone that, of course, telepathy does happen between different beings. So that's what interspecies communication is. It's a a deliberate and a focused, literally a communication. And it is two-way, I must emphasize. Some people think this is a form of psychometry or doing a psychic reading or a channeling. And I'm certainly not a medium in that way at all. It really is a live, clear and present two-way communication between myself and the animal in question. Not that it's limited to just animals. And as much as I might be feeling a question or conveying a question or desired behavior to the animal, so too they can ask us questions also. So perhaps later we can discuss more about the uh, seeming mechanics of it. But to answer the second part of your question about what on earth it has to do with awakening, I have found that the animals and the natural world at large to have been my greatest spiritual teacher. And this is even in the context of sitting for over 10 years with the Sangha and all sorts of other forays in the, in the spiritual realm, broadly speaking. And if what can be regarded as spiritual qualities across any discipline include states of being like presence and awareness and absolute acceptance of what is, then the non-human animals have got that. As the sentient beings that they are, which can be defined as self-aware, which they are, they have these qualities readily available to them in their shining, ever-present authenticity. And this is why it has a lot to do with uh, awakening to self, or at least a clearing out of ego stuff and things that are nothing to do with the present moment or the collective good for that matter. And so we non-humans, when we connect with the, sorry, we humans, when we connect with the non-humans, we pick up on almost a feeling of that limbic resonance. We, we get to bathe in their states of being. And that can't but affect us. It certainly does affect us in all sorts of positive ways. And another way or reason that this has a lot to do with awakening is it really is about us remembering our native states. This is about us humans remembering our original wiring, how our brains and how the intelligence of our heart, more importantly, uh, were once in our conscious awareness, deeply wired to the collective, to all the beings in our immediate environment, the very particles of soil under our feet, the spider and her web, the leaf on every tree, the root under the ground, or the deer species in the distance. And as we again remember through communication, through connection, as we again remember, we literally again become members of the greater collective. And we learn more and more about those unified states of shared awareness. And we experience ourselves less and less separate from the web of life. I remember hearing a story, it might have been a Sufi story about some... um someone who got enlightened or awakened 
by sitting and watching a cat watching a mouse hole and, <laughs> and just sort of tuning into the sort of presence and alertness of the cat. And he kind of entrained with it and it, it mm. uh, triggered his awakening. Absolutely. It, it is that, that presence and awareness, infinite. And the non-humans just show up as fully themselves you know, to each and every moment. Most of us get to experience that briefly through living with pets, perhaps. Just think of any dog with the wagging tail and the aliveness in the moment. Um, most of us get to experience it through animals. We get reminded of our own nature and of non-separation. Yes. Incidentally, I want to remind those who are watching live that if you have a question for Anna, you can post it on the form on the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com. Down at the bottom of that page, there's a form through which you can post a question. What sangha have you been sitting with for 10 years? Advice of Vedanta. Under whose auspices or tutelage or whatever? Oh, there's an unteacher here in South Africa who was with Ramana Mahashi in the old days. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that is, you know, the path of, of non-duality, which I discovered uh, about 10 years after I've been doing the interspecies communication. And it really, really resonated with me because this work and this passion and this joy, that, that is what, I, what I'm up to in this lifetime. It's been an ongoing and remains an ongoing uh, inner work. I have to do the inner tracking to keep on watching where my belief systems are getting in the way of the truth of the other, where my very paradigms are getting in the way. You know, this form of communication is nothing at all to do with knowledge about a certain species, which could lend us to project onto any individual member of that species some beliefs or generalizations. And that's not appropriate at all. We're dealing with a sentient being after sentient being after sentient being when we're dealing with, with individuals. And so it's, it behooves me to constantly be looking at who I am in that equation. Because if I'm to know the, the truth and the real thoughts, feelings, what's moving for that other, I need to be a clean slate and as neutral as possible on the inside. And this is why this form of interspecies connection is not really about learning any fancy technique or you know, having a magic wand waved or having one's 27th strand of DNA activated. It's nothing unnatural like that. It really is about clearing out, clearing out the baggage and continue clearing out. Well, if we were all to have reached that state, we wouldn't even be having this call, none of us. So it's not about having achieved that. But it is about the inner awareness, again, the inner tracking, so that I can notice when even my desire for a wished-for answer from the animal is getting in the way of me perhaps clearly hearing their answer. Imagine if I'm saying to one of my cats, do you want to move house with me and come live in a new location? Yeah, I would love that answer for them to be a yes. I would love that. I'm personally vested in that outcome. And this actually happened a few months ago. One of my cats said, no, not at all. He wanted to stay where we had been living on the forest edge. And for me to hear that no, I had to get beyond my own inner yes and my emotional investment in that. And it wasn't that I didn't have my wishes as an attached human being. It was that I could sit still enough, long enough to subtly pick up on his feeling of no and existing through the filter of my yes that was in the field for me. One of the things I found most fascinating about the videos I watched on YouTube of you doing your work is the expression on your face while you're doing it. You just settled into this 
really innocent, clear, settled state, which is really evident on your face. And, and then the communication takes place. That was as fascinating as whatever content mm-hmm. you were coming up with in, in the communication. And I mention that because of what you just said, that you have to be totally clear and centered and balanced and without any kind of mm-hmm. static in order to do this. Indeed. Actually, my grandmother commented on that the first time she saw it. She phoned me from a semi-arid high desert where she was living. She's like, hello, Anna, dear. Your face looks so different. You look like an angel in church. Of <laughs> course, <laughs> I'm completely unaware of it because I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be anything or be in an elevated state. It's just about dropping and dropping. But I do get that feedback when I have people around me and, and we're in nature or in front of an animal and connecting. I get that feedback afterwards. But during the time of the communication, I am largely unaware of self. Like, really, I don't know. Yeah, the persona drops away and my ego-based identity takes a little bit of the background. And the inner narration and the dialogue, you know, the internal critic that's going is just background noise. I don't bother trying to push that away because, as Carl Jung rightly said, what we resist persists. So I don't bother to give my attention and my focus to those thoughts that I'm, I'm finding unhelpful. Instead, I just stay with the moment and stay with the moment. And the best way I know how to do that from my animal communication mentors is is mindful breathing, just simply watching my natural breathing rhythm. Seeing as the mind insists on being busy with something, may as well just tell it to run along and watch the breathing, which presumably I'm doing anyway. Mm-hmm. It also looks like when you're doing the animal communication, you're not even looking at the animal. You're you're kind of your eyes are downcast. You're, you're, you seem very inward. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I am very um, inward. I'm being with that very fine, fine-tuned inner listening. And I don't mean clear audience necessarily. A very fine inner awareness. Also, I often have my eyes closed or downturned so that my busy mind is not distracted by my physical surroundings and any movement or things that may be happening for this monkey mind to attach to and start to wonder about. And another reason to not hold direct eye contact with the animal is that from that animal's uh, cultural perspective and uh, within their species, being stared at by a human might not be such a grand thing. It may not put them at ease. In fact, quite the opposite. So with the exception of trying to stare at a cat, which they really don't care about, and no one can win a staring competition with a cat. But otherwise, looking deeply into an animal's eyes can just kind of freak them out. And it's really us humans who have this thing about eye contact, meaning deep and intimate connection. Um, It's not at all necessary and can actually be counterproductive in a communication and make an animal feel like they're going to be on the back foot, which may make them less open to relaxing into a free flow of communication as well. Mm -hmm. And I gather you don't even have to be in the presence of the animal. I heard uh, some Mm -hmm. accounts of you communicating with whales and sharks that were Mm -hmm. not in your immediate vicinity so it's sort of a long distance attunement it is as telepathy has been proved to be it is a long distance it works as easily remotely as if the animal's right in front of me there's no loss of signal or uh, weakening of signal for distance or mountain ranges or big city buildings being in the way and again for the sake of my very busy mind i sometimes find it easier to be clear when i'm connecting remotely 
because I don't have things like the animal's facial expression or body language to lead me down the path of some interpretations. And my cognitive interpretation of a dog with its mouth open and tongue hanging out would look like happy dog face. And perhaps the dog really is happy to be connecting with me in that moment. But perhaps what I'm inquiring about is some deeply traumatic part of their past. And they're conveying to me the abuse that they suffered as a puppy. And my greater awareness is going to be less available for the details of the sadness when my mind is busy processing their happy face in that moment. So remote can often be easier because we don't have that other interference for our thinking brains to be having a party with. Yeah. Are you aware that in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali talks uh, about one of the cities or attainments as being the ability to understand the language of animals? Uh, yes, yeah. I am. And I've, I've met a couple of spiritual teachers along my path, one of whom is Leslie Temple Thurston, who you and I were just mentioning recently. And in the 1980s, she was gifted with one of these cities as well and would so dearly have loved to have made that her focus. But she was guided that her work is with the humans. And uh, we found each other about 12, 15 years ago, and we created some sacred activism initiatives together, uh, both of us tuning in to another layer of communication that's possible, which is into the collective consciousness. So far, we've been talking about individual communications as if it's a walkie-talkie set or two-way radio or tin can to the ear and a long string between the two. Um, that's just the, it's a metaphor of a, of a mechanical process. It isn't actually mechanical at all. It's about us as a receptive being, really being open and being coherent so that we can aware anything really. And particularly that we can aware the aspects of uh, creation where the light of our attention is falling a little bit like a lighthouse beam. So which, whatever we choose to focus on is where we, through this vessel of the human brain and being, would get a more clear kind of reception signal, to put it that way. But we can connect also with any layer of, of existence, and we can connect with the collective consciousness of a certain species, which is what Leslie and I did with elephants, along with a couple of other people at that time. And when we deeply tuned into the collective consciousness of elephants and asked how we could help at this time of their extreme dire need and you know, their possible imminent extinction, we'd imagined we might be given advice by that collective consciousness about some practical things we could do or petitions or um, projects or very specific location-based assistance. But instead, the energy and the message we got from the collective consciousness was that it's almost really too late to do anything practical. And what they really wanted people who cared to around the world to do is to hold them, to hold solidarity with them and to hold them in compassion and to visualize them roaming free and having space and being the fullest versions of their most wonderful selves and bringing that positive uh, energy and holding them in the light, holding them in that way, instead of uh, working against the, you know, the, the, the terribly unpleasant things that are happening to them around the planet. So we can connect in at that, at that collective level as well, or there's many ways to slice and dice the idea of a collective consciousness. 
I was just last weekend uh, facilitating some things at Africa's largest reforestation initiative, a festival with workshops and planting thousands of trees in an area that was otherwise uh, just very inhospitable and really struggling. And there, the collective consciousness that, that the team connected with was the, the planting site and the forest, which of course comprises many different species. And that forest and the planting site too have a very specific collective personality. That's mm. very interesting. Let's, very let's interesting. talk about that a little bit more. Um, Firstly, I want to mention that Leslie Temple Thurston, whom we mentioned, has been on Bat Gap. You can find her in the past interviews menu. And, um, and also Andrew Harvey does stuff in South Africa with lions mm. and all. You're probably connected with him, are you? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And yeah, I'm a big fan of his uh, sacred activism work and wisdoms. And we've had a few conversations about, again, the, the work on self that's required for it to be truly helpful and truly clear it really does come down to our own spiritual work not even for the sake of the other but by just doing that work on ourselves we are automatically being that we are literally vibrating that into the world and we have to be careful that we're not doing it to be the hero to be the rescuer or for the sake of spiritual ego yeah it's not about us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah um but this, this notion of collective consciousness, I think, is very interesting. And I think it's something that spiritually inclined people would want to understand more clearly. And, pro and probably mm. most of them do. But uh, what you're saying, I believe, I'll let you say what you're saying, but I, just to get you started, that um, you know, there are all sorts of different arrangements of collective consciousness. Uh, Rupert mm. Sheldrake was talking about it in his, his interview in terms of morphogenetic fields and that mm. even a different, different species would each have their own field. Um, and as well as geographic locations would have fields like a city or a nation or a, the whole world has a, has a mm -hmm. collective consciousness. And these can be influenced uh, reciprocally uh, mm. by us. Um, you know, we can have an influence on them and the ambient field has an influence on us. So I want you to elaborate on that a little bit. Mm. Yes, another, another very eloquent scholar who speaks about this and writes about it is Greg Braden. And yeah, so he's looked at the quantum physics and the very ancient principles and practices in a number of the Eastern wisdom traditions. And of course, this, this influence on the collective and the influence of the collective on us is, is absolutely provable. In fact, there's a formula for it even. So in all those experiments, those large group meditations in the mid-1970s outside Chicago and other cities were, were a proof of this. So fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So it literally takes square root of 1% of the population to cause a, a real 3D result in the experience of, of the rest of the population. And that's all just numbers, and, you know, either interesting or not. But what it is, is that, well, let's think of it this way, even ourselves as a seemingly individual human, we have several roles that we play in our life. We're a child, we're perhaps we're a sibling, we're a niece, we're a nephew, maybe we're a parent. We're a colleague, we're a student, we're a teacher, we're a friend. And these are several roles that we have uh, embraced within our sort of biological unit. You know, our skin bags going around acting out these different, these different roles and these different, these different expressions of our truth. You know, it's not a mask that we're putting on. It's just a role that we genuinely arise to in the constellation 
of things, constellation of our lives. And we are part of the constellation of the biome, whether that's on the real micro level, close to home. You know, we are related to that spider in the garden who knows us and recognizes our energy field. We are related to that bird who migrates and comes to visit once a year. We are related to the clouds that go by. We are in a constellation. And even as we play out our different roles, so we too could be said to be part of different collectives. We're part of our family collective. We're part of our workspace collective. And it's not like a pie that only has a finite number of slices that are possible. This whole way of looking at it is really simply the human mind's attempt to try to grapple with the enormity of life itself. And we forget that we're not separate. We forget that we are holographically a representation of that life, not as a symbolic act, but as a very real energetic fact. We are vibrating with that same pulse that is vibrating through everything. And as we can bring some self-regulation, perhaps, to how we're vibrating, so too those ripples are going to go out in concentric circles from the pebble of us that is dropped into the pond of life. And those concentric rings will go out into infinity, vibrating through and affecting everything that they touch. And any other perceptive being in the universe is able to perceive and know who we're being. So as humans are, are able to, again, connect with those ways of knowing ourselves, as we walk into a field where some horses are grazing, we are literally giving off the electromagnetic signals of various of our roles. We might be thinking about our work week. We might be walking with a family member and we might be feeling something happening with our body because it's a bit sore. We haven't been outdoors lately. And all of these things are being radiated from us. And all those horses in the field are getting us loud and clear. They're knowing all aspects of us. Um, haven't you noticed it's impossible to fake it with an animal? We can't pretend to, for example, be not afraid of them if we really are. We can't pretend to be being kind if we actually have ulterior motives when the dog gets to us and we're going to give them a spanking. So who we are being is being broadcast. And it's for us humans to be able to receive the broadcast of all of life around us again. Um, when we so choose. So there's many different ways to, we, we can group the idea of a collective in whichever way, in whichever constellation we choose to, because it is our ideas. Life is just simply being itself with no hierarchical and no value difference between the smallest and the biggest, between the seen and the unseen. Okay, your last comment triggers a question that had been in the back of my mind. Um, <clears throat> various spiritual teachers and traditions kind of um, offer a hierarchical arrangement of levels of evolution, um, which kind of parallels even biological evolution as it's understood. In other words, they would say that a rock is fairly primitive soul, if it has a soul, and that a, a microbe is more evolved and an ant is more evolved and a turtle is more evolved and a monkey and so on. And, mm. and, and this is kind of... Um, paralleled by development of the brain uh, and the nervous system. A human brain and nervous system is much more sophisticated than that of a turtle or even a horse or even a monkey. So um, would, it, would it stand to reason that um, the subjective experience of all these beings is um, 
similarly arranged and that you know it's much more simplistic and primitive in a sense in in a, a so-called lower species than than it is in in the, in the more evolved ones i don't want to make this question too long but when you're communicating with let's say a i don't know any kind of animal a dog or a cat or a, a turtle or whatever kind of animals you communicate with it's it's not like you're communicating with a human mind which behaves and functions the way a human mind does aren't you communicating with something sort of much more rudimentary in a sense <laughs> thank goodness i'm not communicating with the mind and those other non-humans that would just be an absolute <laughs> circus and <laughs> 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 nothing more uh, rudimentary no but yes connecting with the non-mind connecting with the essence and I'll speak more about that in a bit but when we are connecting with any other being we're connecting with their essence completely unrelated to brain size or function and biologists like to uh, measure intelligence by you know, sort of brain size to body ratios and all these sorts of things that are completely yeah, irrelevant. Cerebral cortex and all that. Absolutely. And if intelligence were based on brain size, we'd be in a spot of bother because there were several species that have brains larger than us. And, you know, neuroscientists still barely understand how our own brain functions, actually, as humans. And they still don't know how the melon-shaped uh, organ deep in the dolphins and whales brain functions how that serves them through echolocation like we can't figure it out so yes there might be a hierarchy in one measurement system uh, looking at brain function but that's got nothing at all to do with intelligence or with sentience or with subjective experience to come back, to come back to the first part of your question so subjective experience has got nothing to do with brain function or even the presence of a brain. There's as much experience available to a rock who's been in place for eons as there is available to a tree who's been standing perhaps a few decades, or if they're lucky, a little bit longer. And as there is to a passing ant or a butterfly who's going to live for just a few weeks. Subjective, subjective experience is just that. It's subjective through the filter of that being's range of experience that's possible. And I do mean their sensory experience as well. So there may be some limitations or some additions compared to us humans. For example, insects like bees can see in the ultraviolet range of the spectrum as an ordinary sighted phenomenon, and, and we can't. So there, bees' subjective experience is already much more expanded on the visual front than, than us humans. Nonetheless, we are connecting with the essence of that being and intelligence is not something that can be measured and intelligence is not relative. Intelligence is a simple expression and a knowing of perhaps a version of self or at least the expression of this thing that comes through self and at the same time one's connectedness to the whole. Let's go back to bees. I've communicated lots with individual bees. In fact, where I, where I live, a particular bee with a certain little kink in his left wing, left front wing, comes in to ask me when they're really, really hungry and there's been drought here for a few years and there aren't flowering plants for them. And a certain bee appears to have drawn the short straw and been the one who has to go in and call a human out to come and uh, fill up the, the bee feeder. So that bee is very clearly individuated, firstly, and individually able to make a beeline <laughs> for the kitchen or wherever I'm in the house and, and come find me. 
But at the same time, this bee is very present of the bee collective consciousness. And bees, maybe 50,000 or more bees in any hive, they as individuals are very aware that what they're doing through their roles in their community is for the greater good of the hive. And so if we were to warn one individual bee that they're going to be killed or, God forbid, sprayed with the insect repellent if they stay inside the house, that bee's probably not not going to care too much about that. They don't have a selfish desire to stay alive as long as possible because what they're doing with their life that day and in that moment is doing what they're doing for the collective good and they are on purpose. So let's... Let's ask again ourselves the question of intelligence. Imagine if we humans were doing what we are doing as individual units going around our days for the greater good, for the collective good of even humankind. That might be deemed quite a high state of intelligence. And I see that much more in the insects than I do in humans nowadays. One last thing to say about this is that when we are connecting with the essence of of the other, it's actually our essence that's connecting with them as well. So I happen to have to use my brain to get focused and all those sorts of things and watch my breathing and become calm and essentially try to dehumanize myself in that moment so that my humanness can fall away and not interrupt things and not interrupt my ability to be with the other and be with the moment. So my essence, that that mysterious, unnameable, and perhaps indescribable aspect of self is what is really doing the connecting and the communication. And it is my essence that is receiving the experience of the other and receiving that knowing. But I don't know about it consciously until my unconscious, intuitive data that I've received has run against my mental database of stored life experiences and vocabulary words and sensory stimuli that I have stored in my brain. And when that incoming intuitive data finds a match in my brain, then a little flag goes up and a word pops into my head or a smell or a mental image. And that's when I know that I've received data for the first time. But I've already received it at my essence level before that time. I think you and I would agree that we we all have the same essence and, and there are verses in various scriptures. Like the Gita says that the yogi sees all beings in the self and the self in all beings. And mm-hmm. essentially the idea is that there's only one self ultimately, uh, one essence ultimately, and that we're all manifestations of that or, or we, we reflect that in, to differing degrees and in different ways, right? Are, mm-hmm. we, are we on yep. the same page so far? Yes, we are. <laughs> okay. I agree. But let's take humans, for example. There's a difference between someone with an IQ of 80 and Albert Einstein in terms of their abilities, in terms of their understanding. And there's a difference between someone who is illiterate and William Shakespeare. There's a vast range of capabilities uh, or Mm. expression, even though all those people and many others we could mention all have the same self, capital S, same ultimate Mm. essence. Mm. Obviously, it reflects or expresses very differently through different vehicles. Yes, right. it does. And there's no difference in the value of those different expressions. Yeah. Now, obviously, they have different impacts on society, but everything has its place. All is well and wisely put. Things. Mm. Everyone has their dharma. Everything exists for a reason. So we, we wouldn't be saying here that animals are less valuable than people. Although, is the life of a thousand mosquitoes less valuable than the life of one person who gets malaria? <laughs> no. What's the problem with us getting malaria? I've had it. 
Yeah, I'm sure you didn't enjoy it. And it kills a lot of people it. every year. That, and we try to yeah. you know, prevent that from happening by killing mosquitoes or keep, you know, using mosquito nets anyway. I know. But you see, us humans have, have so far lost our way that we have a problem with physical death as well. And we've become very attached to the staying alive as long as possible, as if physical death is an end to everything. And why should we lengthen our number of days on this planet at the expense of the number of days that another being um, is busy living just because we come and, and, and interrupt things? So, yeah, you know, I've got liters of blood last time I checked, and I can sure spare a few drops for mosquitoes. It's only female mosquitoes who bite, and it's not food for them. They need the blood to complete the uh, reproductive cycle of their eggs hatching. And it's not the mosquitoes' fault or responsibility. If they're just doing their thing. They're doing their thing. And if they happen to be infected with the malaria parasite, which is, again, a parasite infecting them, it's not intrinsic to their own physiology, well, that's just potentially bad luck for me. So in this great mystery and the continual recycling of, of energy, you know, the moment we humans are born, we're starting to decay and and become recycled and one day we'll be pushing up well isn't this interesting too you know the phrase certainly in the more english orientated world where i grew up the phrase is pushing up the daisies mm-hmm. and we use that as a nice colloquial term and perhaps you know we fancy ourselves as artists appreciating lovely pictures of daisies we become we'll mulch. also be feeding <laughs> become mulch we're feeding the earthworms and people go oh i don't want to feed the earthworms you know we have ideas about about things so there's no less value in an individual mosquito compared to an individual human life at all. There's no value difference. You know, that whole thing of before enlightenment scrub toilets, after enlightenment scrub toilets. <laughs> we are here to simply be. And if we are really in a state of presence that is having us be, we wouldn't think, and here's the key word as well, think. We wouldn't think of doing. We wouldn't think of doing. We would naturally arise into a state of being and whatever is possible for both beings to navigate with in those moments would arise. Sometimes these things that are inconvenient for us or unpleasant or may lead to disease are things we can simply take preventative measures around. And we modern humans have got so disconnected from nature that we find it inconvenient or too troublesome to where you know, natural mosquito repellents, for example, to find out about which herbs we could rub on our skin or essential oils. We seem to somewhere along the line in our disconnection, our mass, have come to believe that we are more highly ordained and supposed to be kind of rulers of the planet or at least with a greater right to life. And somewhere along the line, we began to see all the other beings vegetable, plant, mineral, and animal as resources for ourselves instead of as equal brothers and sisters in this web of life, just from different nations. I don't mean to sound persnickety, but for (laughs) instance, before we started, you mentioned that after being a vegan for many, many years, you now eat some meat. We we can explain a little bit. You can talk about that a little bit. So certain animals have to die in order for you and others to, to have that kind of food. If we're all exactly equal, would you be cool with feeding people to animals in order to make sure that they're eating properly? This sounds like a weird question, but I'm just trying to you know, get to the heart of this issue. Because yeah. in, in my perhaps biased opinion, I do see a sort of a hierarchy mm-hmm. of, of values. 
you know, like a lot of the worst plagues and diseases that have, that have afflicted mankind have been solved by sacrificing, in many cases, microscopic forms of life, but sacrificing mm. other sorts of life so that our life may, may thrive. Mm. And why should our life thrive? You see, perhaps those plagues and scourges that have come along and affected humankind is part of the wisdom of nature figuring herself out and perhaps even redressing an imbalance when human population or impact in a certain environment has got way out of balance and is significantly detrimental to the collective good, these scourges, these plagues, these these times of famine are all part of a rebalancing act in, in the greater good. And it's not only some animals that physically stop living their biological lives so that we humans may eat, myself included, it's also plants. You see, in my experience, through direct interspecies communication, I've come to learn, really through direct experience, that there's no difference in consciousness between a member of a plant species or an animal species. And this is where I reached a a kind of a crisis of conscience, because I had been vegetarian first and then vegan for a number of years. And then I was taking my advanced training in interspecies communication and began having conscious conversations with my lettuce leaves and my tomatoes. I thought, oh no, what am I to do now? (laughs) And I'm certainly nowhere, you know, seeking or attaining anything that resembles a level of awakening that allows me to be preferian. And I'm amazed at those people who can, but I'm definitely not there. And so, you know, as we're walking every day, we're squishing insects under our feet. As we are favoring plant foods, we are ignoring the sentience and the beautiful wisdom and intelligence of those plant species. And I've had some chats with some uh, plants who've grown in the agricultural fields that are covering the planet and deforesting the very lungs of our earth. And those plants are having a dastardly, very unpleasant time in their experience of existence. Pesticides, unnatural growing environments, being grown in straight rows that are so unkind to them and their families. They don't have a sense of community. They're taking the brunt and the the full frontal force of the elements coming at them when they're grown in unnatural configurations. So the world is very full of pretty unhappy plants as well as animals. And I would certainly never support uh, agriculture as it stands in the commercial sense. And personally, I never support factory farming either because of the quality of life of the plants and the animals while they are embodied. And in the great recycling that this earth is, all plants, all animals, including ourselves, do just feed back into the system. Yeah. Apropos of this point, one time I was in a lecture with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he said, if you have to eat somebody, eat lesser evolved life. So he kind of bought into that sort of Hindu (laughs) paradigm of there being levels of of evolution of species. I guess maybe his implication was that nature has less invested in a, a lettuce leaf than it does in a cow or something. Yes, yes. And there, there are different paradigms, too. Again, different belief systems that have hierarchical structures. And that just hasn't been my experience in connecting with, you know, connecting with plants as well. And interspecies communication is quite literally that. It's happening out there the whole time between different species not just us kind of high-minded human who comes along and gets to connect with another. Interspecies communication is alive and well out there. I remember once noticing a bunch of bees around a single solitary sunflower that was on the edge of a field. 
And unknowingly at the time, I was projecting and the question I asked the sunflower, I connected with the sunflower is, aren't the bees bothering you? Because to my mind, if I'd imagined myself with that many bees incoming, you know, clearly I was feeling a bit like that would bother me. And I'd inadvertently created that projection, even in the asking of my question. You probably loved it. A better way. Probably loved it, did love it. The answer came back from the sunflower. Um, So hard to put words to these things, but the energy of it that my brain could best give words to was that the bees kiss me with their awareness. And what a beautiful dance of mutual being they are in in that moment. They were probably pollinating the sunflower or taking its pollen elsewhere or something. Exactly. Again, the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of questions have come in. I want to ask those. Mm. And then I have a lot of other things I want to talk to you about. So we'll jump around a little bit topic-wise here while I interject a couple of questions. One is from Irene here. She says, I've always felt a very strong connection to animals. Some people do not seem to have much or any connection. I, in turn, do not resonate with those people in general. Any clue as to why some people just do not have a connection or feeling for animals? Nope. I don't really know why. Yeah, I have animals and nature is one way in which we can open ourselves to to the collective and also to our own animal bodies to become more embodied in our own practices and our own awareness. I don't know why some are or some aren't. There are many different... Uh, spiritual traditions there are many different ways for a human to become more conscious so i don't have an answer for that sorry Mm. maybe it's a faculty that some people haven't developed very well like some people have a really good ear for music we all have ears we can hear but some people just tune into Mm. that uh, they enliven Mm. that ability Mm. Mm. yeah Yeah. and here's one from nike or nick holm from heartbeat sport south africa he wants to know, I wanted to know if perhaps you have any experience with regards to sacrificial animals. Here in South Africa, in the ancient Sangoma uh, traditional healer tradition, it is stated that the animal divine for sacrifice has given its consent. This is done by appearing in the apprentice's dreams or being chosen in other ways. It is very similar to the old ways of uh, Native Americans, where a special bond existed between them and the animals whose lives they took. Hmm. Yes, in the shamanic cultures here, if some if a person is going to be called, get the calling sickness, or just be called to to Tswasa or become a sangoma as shaman, they will receive in their dreams an animal more than once, and the animal will have certain physical features that are identifiable, and it's the person's uh, job to then go and find that particular animal to comb the countryside, and these are long distance travels very often, and they will know when they find that one not only by how it looks, but also because of the resonance with that one. And some small backyard farmers or people who keep their own livestock have this very similar experience when they when they are looking to actually have to eat some animal flesh. So they might be growing some vegetables and raising some animals. And they will. Derek Jensen, by the way, describes this very well in his book. Which title? I can't remember right now, but I'll think of it. So uh, Derek Jensen is a fantastic environmental activist and and, uh, a very eloquent uh, writer on behalf of the earth. And he speaks about having had this major epiphany where he would walk out into the yard and essentially ask a duck or a chicken who might be ready if it was right time for all concerned 
to volunteer itself for the chopping block. And if it was the right time, invariably one duck or one chicken would come forward and follow him into the barn and peacefully lie down, no restraining needed, and look him in the eye as he brought down the chopping knife. So this kind of conscious relating and this conscious uh, giving of life is something that is well known to the indigenous people. It's something that's absolutely available to, to all of us. And if only we could be that conscious with our, our eating of our plant and animal beings and fellows, that would be just absolutely fantastic. I looked him up just now, and there's one book, mm. by, The Myth of Human Supremacy. Is that the one you were thinking of? Nope. There's another one called Endgame, another one called the language, A Language Older Than... That's one, A Language Older Than Words. I yes. see. Yes, a language older than words is his rather skeptical and reluctant discovery of interspecies communication and getting direct impulses from even the forests and the ecosystems that he was fighting for. And he began to realize that in his fighting for Earth rights, he was actually being violent. And uh, that whole sort of angry activist thing, which, as Andrew Harvey explains, just really isn't going to work in outcome and nor along the way as a process either. Mm. It's just sort of mm. infusing a lot of anger into the environment. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and while we're on the topic of such things, may I also recommend uh, David Abram, A-B-R-A-M, who has written beautiful, beautiful books, The Spell of the Sensuous and Becoming Animal. And he's really deeply in touch with the relational space that is available all around us, even with seeming inanimate things like the walls of our own home. He's had some interesting encounters with, traditional shamans from around the world with mosquitoes and with his own house that he lived in. So all of life around us is very aware and in this constant dynamic relating with us, we just are so distracted most of the time we don't notice. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, people who are into Advaita and all would say, mm. oh yes, it's, it's all one, you know, non-duality. And so you look at the wall and you see yourself and so on. But I guess we're taking this a step further and saying that not only in its sort of ultimate nature mm. is the one, is the wall ourself, but in some little bit more manifest forms, there's a certain mm. sentience to everything. Yes. Yeah, there absolutely is. And that rises and falls like the waves of the tides itself in terms of the dynamic interchange. The interchange rises and falls. And the simple act of noticing something that you're walking past is an energetic connection. It's laying down a gossamer thin thread of connection between the two of you. Noticing something is a, is a version of acknowledgement. Your awareness has gone there. And if we just add a little more of an, an intentional greeting from our heart space or just an inner bow, something along those lines, it's amazing how nature responds to us and relaxes in our presence. Quantum mechanics would probably have something to say about that in terms of the attention <laughs> influencing the the observed, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the observer mm -hmm. influencing the observed. Um, yep. And if you think about it, I mean, a rock, a wall, these apparently in, inanimate, in, uh, insentient mm -hmm. things. If you look at them microscopically, there's this amazing dance of intelligence going on. You know, yeah. just that um, that we don't even fully understand, but this marvel of of for forces or laws of nature doing their thing, maintaining mm. the structure of the thing and, and mm. tremendous dynamism in something that appears inert and non-dynamic. Mm. There, there really, really is. And, and this is also at the root of the um, whole debate around intelligence and, and my view that there is no difference or no hierarchy. 
is that any expression of anything that appears to be form is, of course, not really solid. It's, you know, just how densely packed together are the, are the energy particles, for want of a better term. But any expression of anything, anything, any ant or elephant, any cougar or moth, any human or cat, is just a temporary holding pattern of molecules. And so we are all intrinsically made of the same stuff. We really are, which is not stuff. <laughs> so of course, there's going to be a common language and a commonality and, and a beautiful coherence that's possible. We're just differently arranged holding patterns. That's all. Yeah. Brother, son, sister, moon. So let's shift gears a bit. You have training in marketing. Tracking. Well, initially psychology, economics, marketing, kind of mundane stuff. And then you shifted (laughs) gears and you got into tracking and then this ability dawned. Tell us a little bit Mm -hmm. about how you made that transition. Slowly and painfully. (laughs) (laughs) I had a very ordinary, mundane and suburban upbringing. So just to be clear as well, you know, I didn't run around the plains of Africa riding lions or, you Mm. know, we never went camping, went on safari or anything at all. Very ordinary suburban upbringing into university, business degree, straight into the corporate job to pay off the student loan. But all the way along, I've been fascinated by animals and wished my family could have afforded to send me to vet school, but they couldn't. And it's just as well, because that very scientific and narrow approach might not have allowed for these uh, more wide you know, sort of uh, things to, to come about. So at school, even I would, um, during high school, I would make any project I could about the big cat species. And I volunteered at a vet and did things like this. But really only when I was living and working in Silicon Valley at the end of the 90s, did I finally realize something had to give. I was burning the candle at both ends and the middle of 14-hour workdays and then volunteering on weekends with cheetah conservation at a wolf sanctuary when I lived outside Seattle. And I'm very pleased that I chose to do my tracking training in the U.S. because I grew up in South Africa looking now outside of Seattle, looking at the dried mud or perfect wet sand and the most beautiful footprints, I didn't have a clue what animals might have left those footprints because I didn't know my North American species. And that was such a blessing because my normally very active mind couldn't figure it out and couldn't try to analyze the data. Most fortunately, I was under the guidance of the Wilderness Awareness School, who is very passionate about helping people see through native eyes, as they were put it. And they bring about the cultural mentoring and the nature awareness routines that has been common to original peoples all around the globe. South Pacific Islanders, the sand bushmen here in Africa, Aboriginals, First Americans. And so when I couldn't figure it out, they didn't just tell me the answer or give me a book to study. They would say things like, close your eyes and see what happens. Hold your hand over the track and see what happens, which I did. And I began to get sudden spontaneous mental images or flashes of the coyote's face and then ask, what is this animal? It has a face like a jackal, bigger than a fox. And and, uh, they'd say, oh, yeah, well done. That is coyote's tracks. I'm like, what's a coyote? (laughs) So I had that empirical proof again and again when I wasn't looking for it. And I realized either I was completely losing my mind or hallucinating. But when it began to happen so often that I couldn't discount it by lucky guesses anymore, I researched this field and discovered telepathic interspecies communication. And I used my vacation days from my corporate job to study with the Assisi International Animal Institute 
And the most beautiful uh, mentor, Dr. Jerry Ryan, who herself is a psychologist also, and she and her institute combined the Buddhist teachings of compassion and respect for all life with the new physics as it was at the time, and also with the fundamentals that St. Francis of Assisi was all about. We really took this multidisciplinary approach to exploring what is this phenomenon. But still, it took me three years between knowing I really wanted to, and in fact, just had to get out of corporate and actually doing it. All the fear about changing fields completely, particularly when I was qualified for a certain track that I was on. And eventually, eventually the call of, of the wild just got so strong that I, I had to, I just had to answer and I was on a work-based visa in the U.S., so with leaving my corporate job and my IT career, I left the U.S. as well and came back to South Africa in 2002. I have the animals to thank for this, really. It was those times sitting with the, the captive cheetahs I was working with. It was those times spent on the sandbank on a Saturday morning on the side of a river mulling over tracks. It was those times sleeping under the stars and being present to the beautiful soundscape. It was those that deeply informed my subconscious and unconscious, and those moved me more than the very stimulating mental days at work. But what really moved me was this call back to nature, and little did I know at the time it would help me come back to my own nature, which is true for all of us, our own innate nature as human animals, as deeply connected beings and as intuitive beings. Let's... um have you tell a couple of stories. I'm going to strongly recommend that people watching this watch some of your YouTube videos, and I will link to them, as I said in the beginning. But there are two that jumped out at me, and you can either talk about these or talk about other ones that you'd rather talk about. One was the story of the Diablo, the jaguar, who was renamed Spirit, and the other was the story of Coco the parrot. I feel like telling those mm. just so people have a, a more vivid sense of what actually takes place during animal communication and what its utility is. The keepers at an animal park had a black leopard who had come from a European zoo and he'd recently moved to be in their custody and was snarling and angry. And one night when they were checking on him, he'd actually propelled himself through two layers of electric fence that were switched on, just punched a hole in the fences flattened the six-foot-four keeper and bit through his arm, which put the fellow in ICU for a while. Very clearly, the leopard could have killed him if he'd wanted to, but he went back through the open fence. And they were wondering what to do with this animal. They were caring and kind at that facility, and they would take tours around, no petting or no engagement with the animal at all, but even from a distance, uh, he was obviously just very unhappy and wouldn't come out of his night shelter at all, which is a small, concrete uh, room the size of a typical small bathroom, really. So he was obviously very unhappy and they didn't understand what, what was going on. So I went by and connected with this leopard. In the tours that they were doing at that facility, they'd been speaking about how aggressive he was and uh, the name he had come with was Diablo. And of course, all of the associations with that, meaning devilish and satanic and so on and wild. And when I connected with him, he said that he was really, really, really tired of being held in that paradigm. He was not chuffed with all the associations with his name and those being projected onto him. And he was just living up to this expectation. It was a chicken and egg situation and this vicious cycle. And he really wanted to be 
identified not with that and not with the story of having had an abusive past in the zoo and being wild and aggressive and angry. He wanted to be acknowledged for his essence and for the actually rather large spirit that he has and this expansive spirit without the story. Now, when he had communicated all that to you, mm. what was your subjective experience of receiving that information? Mm. I presume mm. it wasn't English words coming in your head. How, how did you actually know that mm. he wanted or was trying to say all that? Well, I simply imagined the words in my own mind in English as to what is bothering you. And how I received the information back was in this un conscious, intuitive, before my mind's aware of it, you know, state, just as a feeling. And then, yes, I did get some words in my mind. I, I got words that he wasn't sending because he's not sending English words, but that internal translation I spoke about earlier is what happens. Okay. So, so you're I getting got, feelings, words, intuitive flashes, feelings, perhaps visual yes. images even sometimes? Yes. In, in this case, I remember the moment where I got a feeling of his expansive self, his real essence. So I, I felt myself as him. Because when we're in, in communication and connection with another, we are borrowing their experience and, and what they're speaking about. And so I felt myself expand and just be this calm, expansive spirit spreading out across the land and the area there. And at the same time, the words in my mind is translating his, his upset at being identified with the other, with the angry. So the words that came to my mind were, I'm not angry, I'm not aggressive. And they weren't in some booming voice in my ear. They were just simply um, soundless words in my awareness as my brain's way to interpret the incoming intuitive information. So at the same moment, I felt what he is and the commentary on what he isn't. And then he also said he was very worried about two leopard cubs, two ordinarily colored leopard cubs who he had been with before. And they were youngsters and he was worried for their well-being. And the reason he was, and he asked me, do I know what's happened to them? Now, you might ask, why would he ask me when all other species are you know, connected all the time to everywhere? <laughs> so what he had been perceiving remotely across distance was their distress, their immense distress. And he wanted to know what kind of human environment or zoo environment they were in because he could sense their distress. And I didn't know, the keepers didn't know anything about him having been with cubs before. And it took a couple of weeks for the keepers to follow the trail, to follow the paper trail and find out that the cubs who had been in the enclosure alongside him had gone to a zoo elsewhere. A yeah. thought just occurred to me, um, there's more to this story, but um, do panthers and other such animals use a form of telepathy to hunt? Like they telepathically know that mm. there's, there's a deer a mile away and if I go in this direction, mm. I, I will find it? Or do they just mm -hmm. use sense of smell and all that? They predominantly use their physical senses, but they will also be picking up telepathically, intuitively on the quantum signature, the signature frequency of a deer, you know, a deer moving through. And the prey animal will also be picking up telepathically on the fact that it's being stalked and being hunted. So let's take a group of deer standing in a meadow. They might suddenly all lift their heads and that's because there is a large cat, let's say a mountain lion in the grass, that they can't see nor smell. Because you'll see what the deer are doing is immediately testing all directions with their senses, sniffing at the breeze this way and that, moving their ears around, swiveling their heads to look in all directions. If they had had any sensory proof of that predator, they'd all be looking or smelling in the same direction, but they're not. They're looking around and scanning for five sensory information about the location 
of the threat and the intensity and the intention of that predator that they can pick up on. So a, a leopard or a mountain lion strolling through, even unseen, is not sending off that kind of uh, energetic intention. And the electromagnetics, which can be photographed by Kulian photography, by the way, would look very different than when it is there even more hidden on the sensory level, but with intent. It's literally broadcasting that intention, and that's what the deer are picking up on telepathically. I wonder if predators try to hide their broadcast or dampen it just as they try to hide their physical mm -hmm. bodies so as not to broadcast so loudly. Yeah, They don't because they're just way too authentic and just being themselves help in the it, moment. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, just being, yeah, yeah. Huh. Like we can't really hide it. We can, we can think we're hiding something. At best, we can perhaps distract ourselves. Okay, so continue with the story of spirit. It was a nice outcome. What happened next? Yes, well, the, the keepers, thank goodness, although they thought this was an entirely last resort, completely mad move to call in an call animal in psychic person. <laughs> totally, yeah. They were really desperate. And, and they were sort of rolling their eyes, like, yeah, sure, he's upset with his name or whatever, you know, until I said that thing about the two leopard cubs. They're, oh, wait a minute, because the wife of the keeper had remembered vaguely, I think from one of the photos, she'd remembered that there were two cubs you know, next door to him months, months before this. So, um, we left with the film crew, and that afternoon, the, the, the keeper, year quietly when no one was watching and there was no members of the public around, he went outside Spirit's enclosure and the, outside the night shelter, and black cat in this dark night shelter, you could barely see him. And Jörg just quietly conveyed to him energetically and mentally, saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry that we've been continuing to tell your bad and sad story and call you aggressive just because you've been behaving from a place of upset. I'm so sorry. We go, we acknowledge you for the spirit that you are. We're going to change your name. We're going to call you spirit so that people will project that onto you. And we want you to know we're never going to ask anything of you here. Like at the zoo where you came from, there were so many demands on you. You, know, you don't even have to come out of this night shelter ever. We're sorry that we've been asking you to. You can do exactly as you please. We will take care of you unconditionally. And because you wasn't attached to him coming out of the night shelter, Spirit then did. He walked out of his night shelter right then, first time out in sunlight in six or seven months, and has been a happy cat ever since. And there is more to the story that's not, uh, that's not known in the public forum yet. But fast forward about five years, and Spirit and his other 54 big cat companions have all moved premises to a fantastic, very beautifully lush area where they can all hide out from human you know, being seen by humans if they want to. And a zoo elsewhere in South Africa was closing down and had five-year-old leopard sisters they needed to get rid of. So they came to this sanctuary and they were put in an enclosure where spirit could see them. Leopards are solitary cats and don't ever live together in the wild. And if you try and put two leopards together, they will fight to the death until one or both of them are dead. That's why they had a healthy distance between these two new leopards enclosure and spirits enclosure, but they noticed that they showed interest in each other and seemed quite friendly across distance. You can see where this is going, right? Right. So you, Romance. You friendly, asked me to communicate with all three because they, he felt that they should put them together, but all the vets and all the conservationists were saying, no way is you're going to have dead leopards strewn about the place. And all those, all three leopards said, hello, we are friends from back then. We are the ones. 
And so very bravely, the keepers and the managers went against the advice of all the scientists and they did put them in the same enclosure where they've been living together happily ever after. Good. Have they, had, have they had babies? Oh, no, no, not at all. No, it's okay. highly unethical for any animal sanctuaries to be breeding and creating more captive animals. No, they, uh-huh. there's no breeding allowed at all. I see. Um, mm. So they must neuter or spay the, the animals. Either yeah. oral contraceptives or injectable contraceptives for the females or, yeah, vasectomies, neutering. Yeah. I see. And yeah. I presume, this is a dumb question, but I presume that having been raised in captivity, there's no way these animals could be released into the wild. It would just, they wouldn't be able to manage it, right? Generally speaking, what you say is is correct. There have been some exceptions to this where animals raised in captivity, like one of the white lions I've worked with, um, has this white lion in particular at the age of 11 he was reintroduced into the wild for the first time after living on a stud farm being made to sire lots of other lion cubs but you see it takes an incredible like years of work and effort to essentially teach the animal how to hunt successfully all of these large predators will have the chasing instinct and they for sure know how to chase something but they wouldn't know what to do with it when they catch up with it they, can leave, they don't know how to actually kill or hunt. And uh, in some cases with reintroductions, though, I have been involved with the, with the people, the animal carers, to help telepathically um, give some instruction to the animal on how to hunt and which species to avoid and which ones to chase and, um, and their concerns about it. So it is, it is possible. But goodness knows there's so many wild animals you know, in situ who are wild and the conservation effort should be going there. And, uh, yeah. rather than, than, than captive animals. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Irene sent over another question. She's sitting right here, but she, it's easier for me <laughs> to send me it by email here. She's had some experiences where the animal sounds, such as a meow or a bark, will translate into English within herself. In other words, she mm-hmm. knows in those rare moments that, what, that they are wanting to communicate in English. I'm reading it. This has always happened when I am in between waking and sleep in the gap, mm-hmm. but the experience is clear. There must be many different ways communications can come through depending on the person. Yes, exactly. It does depend on the person. And interesting what she says too about it happening more easily when you're between waking and sleep. That is absolutely where we are our most diffuse and where our awareness is the most dispersed and the most open before we've picked up the thinking mind and have gone and closed ourselves down. So this can be lovely for anyone on this call to to practice, perhaps when you're falling asleep later or waking up in the morning. Just have a have an intention or have an invitation to yourself and to, to life to just put your awareness out there and invite any any incoming messages, any being that may want to show you something. So yeah, it and it, it could be that the animal's making a sound or not, but impressions that come our way, for example, in English in our in our minds does depend on us, the receiving device, if you like. So if there were three people sitting in front of the same dog and all silently telepathically inquiring of the dog, what is your favorite toy? Person one might get the words green tennis ball just suddenly in their mind in English. Person two might get the mental image of a green tennis ball hanging in front of them you know, in their mind's eye. And a third person might get that dreadful smell of a really wet, damp, chewed up, you know, old tennis ball (laughs) smell. And all three ways would be equally valid ways to receive the information. And that does depend on the person. Some people are more cognitive and more wordy and more analytical. They may get words. 
Some people are more kinesthetic and tactile. They might get physical sensations or feelings or smells. And some people are more visual. You know, artists would get mental images much, much more often. And typically it happens in a range of ways. We as the human receiver should never worry about or try to uh, determine which way we're receiving information because we're actually receiving it in its pure raw quantum form. And the internal translation is what is uh, making it come about as one of those other internal senses for ourselves. We don't have any say over that. And if we try to direct that, we're taking our attention there instead of more of our awareness being open to actually receiving. Mm. In the notes you sent us, you suggested that one of the things we might discuss is what the the non-humans are feeling about the current status of human-caused destruction. And a question came in related to this from Parthena in Sebastian, Florida. She asks, um, I feel that we humans are an invasive species and Mm -hmm. are not the best stewards of the planet. Kind of understatement. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing I feel good about at this point is that nature will survive us and that the earth will recover from our being here. What could nature as a collective possibly think, in quotes, about their being free from our existence? Mm, It's a very, very good question. I am quite sure they would be delighted to be to be free of our existence, not as a concept and not as a future projection, but um, you know, the, the, all the nature kingdoms are very acutely aware that their experienced difficulties in their daily lives is because of human influence, whether that's on the large scale, like the climate chaos we're experiencing, or the plastics that are just infusing the oceans, even at the microplastic level, or whether it's at a very local influence level, like the way you're spraying pesticides on, you know, on the vegetables outside your back door. So all of nature is very aware that the, the troubles they're experiencing is because of human influence. And to my absolute astonishment, they haven't just risen up in some kind of Orwellian you know, animal farm <laughs> mass movement against us. There are several species who could really harm us if they wanted to. Certainly the larger ones here in Africa, the elephants could just go on a trampling rampage. But the level of uh, forgiveness that is emanating from the natural world is, is quite astounding. You see, they know, they know behind what we're doing, they know that we've really lost our way. And the consequences for them are dire. But they also know the consequences for ourselves are dire also. And they appear to have an incredible level of compassion for for how lost we are. And and then again, what I said earlier on, there's also this quality of, of acceptance with things the way they are. And there's different kinds of acceptance, right? There's that passive, you know, be a doormat kind of resigned kind of acceptance. And that's not the kind I'm talking about. I'm talking about that much more expanded state of surrender as a spiritual quality of acceptance. They have that. They have a a trust in the process. And for sure, individually and even collectively, they would really wish, and often asking me, you know, in my communications, asking me to, to try to help things be different, for things to be changed, for the humans to behave differently, for something to be changed about the human actions. And again and again, my answer to them is just, well, you know, that the humans don't agree. I often relay messages from from wildlife to the humans who are influencing those environments, and the humans are shut down or think 
they don't have the material resources to make a change and are not willing to look to their inner resources. And part of the problem is that um, humans collectively, if we really woke up, you know, with our, our thinking awareness, if we woke up to the scale of what, uh, what the effects are of what we're doing, I think that wall of grief would be quite overwhelming in our modern cultures where we don't have a way to process that grief. We've become so unrelated to other and even to ourselves. We don't know how to process that, that grief that is just waiting under the lid of Pandora's box. And if we acknowledge that's a message from one particular environment or from that, that one shark that is washed up, you know, gaffed, or that, that one pesticide-filled, you know, insect in the field, if we were to deeply acknowledge and feel and hear and know that that is real, it would call into question our entire paradigm of modern living and we would be present to the effects. And most people just can't go there. It's just better to keep the blinkers on. And the non-humans allow us that latitude. They allow us to remain blind and unseen. I don't know if they have much choice. And, uh, you know, our, obviously our paradigm needs shifting. And I don't know quite what it's going to take to shift, uh, to shift it. It seems like we don't change until we're utterly forced to. Uh, you know, mm. I mean, there's mm. obviously just taking the whole climate change thing. Some people see it coming and others get money from the oil companies to vote in favor of doing nothing about it. Mm. So there's a sort of a blindness or a stubbornness, you know, as we mm. as the Titanic heads towards the iceberg. <laughs> there is. And you know, the, the, the unraveling is the unraveling and the the falling apart of systems, whether those be conceptual, economic, or infrastructural, is what's happening. And that's already been happening for the non-humans. We have unraveled their migration routes. The forests in the Pacific Northwest have dried up of the last you know, mountain caribou. We are causing so many extinctions. Life as they know it, both in quantity and in location and in quality, has been unraveling for a long time. So it's inevitable that we too are going to fall prey to that phenomenon. We're not above it. And in the unraveling, and energy is recycled. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. So there's such opportunity for new paradigms to come about, but it's not going to be through technology or through our thinking minds. It's going to be through different aspects of our being that are going to have to come forward and, and stand in front of our thinking minds and our rational approaches. Are you optimistic, pessimistic? You know, do you feel like we're doomed or do you feel like some people feel, for instance, that there's there's some sort of spiritual renaissance taking place in the world and all these people are getting interested in spirituality and having spiritual awakenings and so on. And, and that somehow is going to percolate up in terms of changes in social structures and economic policies mm. and environmental, you know, concerns and, and all that kind of thing. I tend to think that way myself, but um, I don't know mm. for sure. It's just a, it's a mm. comforting thought. Mm. It is a comforting thought and the change is incremental, which implies it's still operating within the same construct. There's change to, which is incremental and it's still dealing with uh, adjusting the current known world and working with criteria that are already known. So I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic because I don't tend to take a future view on this. You know, things are just happening as they're happening. Uh, I tend to think of myself as realistic, which I suppose anyone in their subjective view would say about themselves. 
But I think, yeah, the, we, we're way beyond the tipping point, for sure. We really are. The near-term extinction is upon us of our, own, of our own species as well. Personally, I don't have a problem with that. And I do also deeply know that a co-created solution is more than possible. It's there. It's already available. But that would take us humans playing our part in the co-part of that, just really. And co-created with other species, with the river systems, with the wisdom of the mountains, and with any other unseen forces that may be at play that we don't even know about currently. So I absolutely know that this is possible. And whether or not that happens is just sheer conjecture. I do know about the level of forgiveness and tolerance that the non-humans display towards us. And I know about critical mass, and there are some changes happening. But I, I, think it's, I think it's too late on the numbers and on the predictions and extrapolations level for there to be a change within the paradigms we currently know. But what absolutely is possible is a whole new paradigm. If we can, again, awaken to the wisdom of, of our heart and our greater being and our essence, who knows what amazingly creative solutions can be found. And I, I'm very, very delighted with that prospect, whether it comes to pass or not. Yeah, I'm sure everyone understands the word paradigm, just um, kind of the framework of our of our thinking about the scientific mm. paradigm, for instance, is, mm. uh, is a and sometimes you hear the term materialistic paradigm, the notion that that the world is fundamentally material and that there is no okay. sort of spirit and that when the body dies, that's the end of you and that kind of thing. It's a way of thinking. And in science, over and over again, over the several centuries that science ex- has existed, Paradigms have been upended by new information or anomalies, mm-hmm. as they're called, that conflict with the existing mm-hmm. paradigm and eventually shake it to the point where it has to crumble and the new one takes its place. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. a summation of that word. Here's an interesting question from um, a fellow in Mumbai, initials KP. That one of my teachers tells us that he has had an experience of dogs and even a bat telling him that they would like a human body so that they could work for liberation. They also suggest that humans don't seem to be doing enough with the body. I wonder if that means not doing enough for liberation in their human body. Does this sort of spiritual perception or desire in animals resonate with you? Have you noticed something like this? I am going to make an assumption about what KP says, that by liberation he means you know, the spiritual liberation. Enlightenment, and, that kind yeah, of thing. Enlightenment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been my experience that uh, non-humans don't need a human body to expand their sense of self or sentience. So uh, I really don't think humans are at the pinnacle of a pre-enlightenment incarnation (laughs) or a a place to aspire to. I've honestly received as much wisdom and transformational information and perception from a horsefly as I have from a sheep, as I have from elephant. So that has not been my experience that they would want a human body. What has been my experience is that, let's call it a soul for want of a better definition, is that a soul can incarnate many times in many different species bodies, in many different species forms. But the way I've experienced it is is more like the Native American's way of understanding these things, which is that a soul will show up in a particular species vessel, physical vessel, for the sake of practicing and integrating those qualities in that given lifetime. And that we're perhaps all just on a journey of accumulating things into our toolkit and whatever is appropriate, not only for 
self or the even the idea of individual progression is is kind of strange to me because it can often be overlaid with a, a somewhat self-motivated agenda. But let's say that there is a degree of appropriateness if we are all just threads playing our part, then perhaps in whatever is appropriate in any given incarnation for self as a microcosm and including our contribution to the collective, then it can go this way and that way, sideways and up or down, whatever ideas we have across the species boundaries. I've communicated with a cat who in a previous incarnation was the human mother of her present guardian. And it wasn't a demotion or a downgrade. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I've used the metaphor. I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. I don't think I originated this, that animals are in a sense like children in the sense that they're innocent, spontaneous. They don't have a whole lot of freedom to operate outside of their their instincts and their nature, just as maybe children are innocent and spontaneous and pretty much have to live mm. within the confine, the constraints of their, of what their parents um, mm. dictate. But then uh, humans in general are more like teenagers, you know, who've gained some independence and free will and they begin playing with it and exercising it and very mm. often get themselves into all kinds of trouble. And many even don't survive <laughs> that phase. Well, whereas enlightened people, if we want to use that term, mm. are more like sort of adults who've made it through the teenage phase and gained some some wisdom and they still have their free will and, and, and their independence, but they've somehow come back well while retaining those qualities, they've come back to the innocence and spontaneity of children. Mm, I love that metaphor. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there is, there is that you know the spontaneity with the openness of children and Again, the other end of a typical human lifetime scale, when, when the elder is sitting there quietly, just sagely, not having to be important or even give pearls of wisdom anymore, just sitting there and being with all around and all those other stages of humans as they are. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Okay, good. The reason I didn't, I didn't know if you'd agree with that metaphor is that it sort of implies a progression that mm. the humans are somehow... Have, progressing beyond a stage at which the animals are, and then eventually arriving mm. at an even further stage, which kind of <laughs> no. recapitulates the innocence of animals or children, using the metaphor, but incorporates yeah. new knowledge. Yeah. I think for me, the metaphor is about us, about us coming in basically clean, and then we get distracted, we go off track. Most of us get educated out of knowingness. And uh, we get educated out of our direct perception of things. And we get taught to evaluate and think of all these things. And hopefully, if we live alive long enough in these bodies, where we can begin to lose the mind again, all the better. <laughs> as, as my tracking mentor, John Young, says, lose your mind and come to your senses. <laughs> mm. There was a video of you out with the, this fellow tr yeah. tracking uh, Eland, I believe it was. And yes, that's, that's an amazing right. one. I'm going to link to that one, too, on, on yeah. your, your BatCat page. It was really cool. Yeah. You, you can talk about this a little bit. He was saying, you were both talking about how he actually sees a sort of a line on the ground, a, a line mm. of light, and then just begins to follow that line. And his body can only go in that direction. And, mm. and maybe he doesn't see the line the entire time, but when he needs to see it again, it shows up again, and then he keeps following mm. it. That's right. He sees the, the, the silver lines, which is common to some of the oldest trackers, where they, they're tracking in such an intuitive way. They're not anymore looking at footprints and analyzing things and trying to scan with their eyes to see where the next footprint in the trail is. And that comes from John Young, who's founder of the Wilderness Awareness School, by the way. 
and other deep nature connection movements. It comes from him just really feeling, opening to opening to that one, connecting with the track and opening his heart again, opening his being to a feeling for for that one. And he then is is in tune with the almost like the energetic trail that the animal would have left when it passed there. And again, him seeing silver lines is some way that his brain is interpreting the energy to gift him with a conscious awareness of it. So he's got something to go on quite literally. And his body, his own animal body is responding in that matrix of connectedness. His own animal body is responding and wants to go that way. It's like a leaning on impulse that can't be ignored. You know, we modern humans have this sometimes in everyday life too. Probably not every day though, because usually it only happens when our life is really in danger and that instinct kicks in. So when we're sitting at the traffic lights and they're red and then they turn green and we're ready to pull away, but something makes us not go and the cars behind us are on their horns and hooting, we still can't go. We don't know why we're just sitting there completely, you know, statuesque. And then suddenly a car comes across the lights, across the intersection from the other direction, running a red light. And had we pulled forward into the intersection at that moment, we would have been flattened. So there are these things where we just suddenly know something. We suddenly feel to not go in a certain direction or to go in a certain direction. The parent who suddenly in an afternoon wonders where their child is or finds themselves walking down to the riverbank and around the tree suddenly sensing where there's a need or where the one that they're connected with is. So we have these feelings embodied as our intuition helping guide us. And we can use this every day. It's a great fun way to actually play with developing our, our intuitive thoughts. You can play with this walking into the, into the coffee shop or walking into the office or getting into your car in the mornings. Just notice little things about where your body wants to go, what your body wants to pay attention to. Close your eyes when you walk into that restaurant or that deli or that coffee shop. Close your eyes as you enter and let yourself notice which way your body wants to go, having asked for where there's an empty seat. And open your eyes, you might find that you're heading for the only empty table in the place. It's meant to be fun. This is childlike. This is us at our innocent, unprogrammed best. So play with it. Sometimes I like to cross-reference interviews. And I interviewed a fellow last October named Ishtar, whose name is also Thomas Howell. And he had that very experience that you just said about the traffic light. Mm-hmm. He, he was maybe 10 or 11 years old or something. And he just had this real, he had had all kinds of intuitive experiences all mm-hmm. his life, but he had this really strong feeling that his mother shouldn't go anyplace. And he begged her, don't go anyplace tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to stay home. And she was kind of ignoring. And then he broke his arm or something playing football and she had to take him to the doctor and they were on the way and um, they went through a green light as they were entitled to do. And mm-hmm. some car like whizzed through and, his mother died. He, he mm. lived, but it was like this, you know, mm. demanding intuition that he mm. you know, somehow mm. got overridden by circumstances. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, here's a question that came in from Robert McEwen in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He, he asks, I have a great Pyrenees dog that belonged to my wife who has now passed. I have used a pendulum to find Jasmine, the dog, when she got scared and took off one day. I have used emotion code to remove emotional blocks. I am a healer and not as powerful as some, but I have seen Qigong used on big animals. Do you use it? I also Mm. talk to Jasmine, but not telepathically. She watches my lips and blinks, makes gestures with her mouth, or shouts at me if she's impatient. How can I develop the telepathy part? Thanks for all you do. 
Well, Robert, I'm sure you are communicating telepathically, but only because you don't believe you are, and Jasmine knows that you don't have that self-belief. She's resorting to the blinking and the physical cues. And this often happens with our domesticated animals. We're, you know, we are in a constant telepathic exchange with them, but they don't really make small talk just for the sake of it. But when something uh, meaningful to them is being spoken about or there's something relevant, they're projecting to us telepathically what's going on for them. And only if we don't get it, or if they, if they know that we don't think we're getting them, they then resort to body language or vocalizing or kind of getting very obvious with us. So I'm sure the telepathy is happening in the background. And about the other part of the question around using pendulum or some coding system or kinesiology, I personally don't use it because I'm fortunate enough to be able to just just sit in the center of myself and be quite clear what I'm getting through. But if I have a very important question, like a real yes, no, literally life or death thing, like is the right time to assist one of my own animals to leave her body, to euthanize her, it's pretty important that I get that one right in the sense that I hear her choice correctly. And given that it's one of my own animal companions, I'm not going to be as clear or as centered because I'm emotionally involved. Then I might, if I'm feeling a doubt about is it yes or no, I might then use a pendulum myself simply to allow my body to become another, another way to confirm the message. Without the pendulum or without the coding system, it would just be my, my conscious brain knowing my intuition. So there is a place for that. As long as those things are not becoming um, an intermediary in themselves, you know, so this isn't a form of psychometry where we need a piece of the hair of the dog. We need to use anything because we're not channeling from yet another party in the, in the construct. It's just really directly from the animal. But as a way to help ourselves become clear, yes, absolutely, whatever works. Also, when we are asking for information or asking an animal to show us what they want us to know, we might get very frustrated and feel like nothing is coming. And all we are aware of is the random other stuff in our brains, like the grocery list or previous conversations on the phone or work stuff. We may get exasperated. It might be that several hours later, while you're washing the dishes or doing something fairly mindless, that a sense comes to, comes to your awareness about that previous question to the animal. And you shouldn't discard it if it comes through later. It doesn't mean that they, at that future moment, are, are communicating with you then. It means that it's just taken that long for your own inner awareness to, to clock what you received earlier during the intuitive communication. Okay, good. Good answer. Um, here's one that came in. This is a follow-up question um, from someone mm -hmm. named Jan in the UK. She said, thank you so much for all you're doing. I've been so moved by your work and today by your words. Um, you know, Spirit the Leopard, were his new companions that he got to be with, uh, those two females, I believe, uh, his, were they former companions of his? I guess she's alluding to the ones mm. who were with him in that other zoo, the young cubs. She didn't quite understand that point wanted it clarified. Yes. They were former companions about five or six years before when they were cubs and he was already adult. They had been in the adjoining enclosure. But but the ones and, who came to live with him finally, yes. uh, more recently, are those the very same two that he had been Those are the very of? same two. Oh, awesome. The very same two. I'm glad she asked because yeah. I didn't get that either. Yeah. yeah, the very same two. It took again a few months for the paper trail to be followed because at first the keeper said, no, these can't be the same two. We have to make out the check to, you know, ABC. Um, and then when the zoo got closed down and the paperwork was wrapped up and the trust was closed and all of that, when they came to actually 
make the payment, but then things had changed and they had to make the payment to the actual owners of the leopards and they were told it's uh, XYZ, which was the name of the yeah, the original place. So yeah, it's and that's again, we know there's always in this, there's always some other greater mystery at at play. You know, something had something had conspired to make them be be reunited. This doesn't mean that we can go around selfishly wishing for things to happen or to see our um, deceased animals come back to us again, reincarnated to come live with us again, because we'd like that. That doesn't really carry a lot of weight in the universal <laughs> wish list. It'd be nice to think that Spirit's uh, concern about those two cats and his intention, you know, uh, mm. concern for them, somehow orchestrated the reunion. Mm, certainly those, those threads, those bonds of being would have been strengthened by his concern for them and, and the tuning in that would have helped uh, strengthen that rope of connection, which might have just been what got pulled upon to bring them back. Yeah. yeah. Another follow-up question. Don Tuttle from Winston-Salem, North Carolina is wondering, would you be able to tell the story of the wisdom you received from the horsefly that you mentioned? I can't remember. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. I had a feeling that would be asking a bit much yeah. to remember that. Um, yeah. So many animals, so many conversations. Yeah. can't remember mm. the details. One thing I was wondering is, I'm sure you don't feel this with all humans, but are there certain humans who are on your wavelength with whom the intuitive gift that you have with animals also applies mm -hmm. such that you tune into them and know things that they are thinking or feeling without having to speak? Um, yes, there are, there are a few, a handful of trusted friends uh, around the world. And um, it's certainly not easy for me with humans at all. Generally, when I speak to colleagues as well, it's, it's, uh, it really is more difficult to connect intuitively with, with the essence of a human because we're all humans. We all have our, our masks that we wear, our roles that we play. There's all that stuff and that mental noise to get through before you get to the real being right on, on the inside. I think if you are going to be um, intentionally doing this with any other human, that it's important to get their waking conscious consent to this and it certainly does call for a, a trust in the relationship so yes i've played tele telepathic games with a friend in california you know like this in years gone by and um, and again it happens spontaneously between two people who are already emotionally connected where you have a feeling you know you might be having just a fine and peachy day and suddenly a mental picture of your brother comes to mind, you just suddenly feel down and then you know that that's his feeling in that moment, you know, you're feeling it on his behalf. So there are these things that happen spontaneously. And yes, there are a few humans with which we have overtly given our permission to, to have no boundaries. How about babies and little children? Do you, who are oh, yes. innocent and open, you must have yeah. easy, an easy connection with them. Absolutely. It's easy and seamless and I can't walk through a shopping mall or, you know, through a parking lot without babies kind of craning their necks to you know, stare out. or look or check it out. I don't know if parents must think I'm some kind of stalker or something because <laughs> the way the kids stare at me, it's kind of, you know, and that's because it is about that being on the same wavelength. You know, the more just sort of open we are, the more others who are open recognize that. And it's just, it's just hanging out on the same wavelength, quite literally, you know, the origin of that expression, meaning good communication, is because on the quantum level, we're literally resonating at congruent frequencies. We're literally on the same wavelength. And then we can understand and know so much more of each other because we're 
we're fully occupying and sharing the same states of being. We're not at different frequencies. Yeah, and I remember. So yes, babies, oh, it's very easy. Hmm. I remember interviewing somebody years ago who was like in an airport or something and like 50, 60 feet away, he saw somebody in baggage claim that just stood out, couldn't mm. hear much or mm. anything or even see much about the person, but the guy just stood out. He said, this guy is some kind of master. So he, he walked and he wasn't dressed unusually or anything, but he, mm. he walked over and introduced himself. It turned out this guy had, was this spiritual teacher, you know, with some, wow. yeah. Right, right, <laughs> great. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to say that I haven't thought to ask or the listeners haven't thought to ask? I would just like to encourage everyone to really practice with this and to play with it. It mustn't become a, a heady kind of a concentration that you have smoke coming out of your ears. It really is fun. We've just been speaking about babies and animals, just sort of authentic and in the moment and, and, and being themselves. And so it really helps if you are wanting to practice with this form of intuitive communication. It really helps to set up some things that looks, look like games, you know, practicing with other humans, sending and receiving objects, um, just tuning in with your own animals who may live with you, although that can be more difficult because we are so close to them already. It can be tough for new information to stand up on our internal radar screen as being new and because we're usually very invested in their responses as well. So it can be a good idea to ask friends or neighbors who have domesticated animals living with them if you could practice with their animals, even by a photograph or something, and ask questions of the animals telepathically that a human can corroborate the answers for as a way to build confidence. And there's also another website of um, a beautiful elder in this field. She's regarded as the grandmother of interspecies communication. Her name is Penelope Smith. And she has fantastic downloadable resources and amazing articles and CDs and instructional material on her website, which is animaltalk.net. Oh, good. I'll link so to at animaltalk.net, yeah. you can get all the resources for your self-paced journeys. And she's a very wise woman. She was the mentor of my mentor, and she really speaks deeply about the sentient and soul nature of animals. So use your intuition, too, when you're exploring this field. There's a whole continuum of, of people in the psychic arts and a whole, whole range of people on the continuum of animal communicators. And some might still have a very dominant worldview that we're just here to tell animals what to do or to train them better for obedience. Um, use your intuition to navigate this realm and finding what resonates with you as well. Yeah. I remember seeing a, a show about Temple Grand, and you probably know her story. It was... Yeah. I guess she was autistic or something or is, and, mm -hmm. but she had this sense of animals and she was able to make sort of animal industry more humane by changing the way pens and things mm -hmm. were designed. But ultimately yeah. it didn't still sounded like a little bit of a you know, unpleasant scene that she was just trying to put a little polish on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes that's all that we can do practically. You know, all that we can do is make a small amendment in, in a situation where people have this weird idea of ownership of animals or things are not going to change. And even if we are connecting with animals having a really hard time, who are being abused or, or worse, just as connecting with them, even from afar, and, and, and sitting, with, sitting witness to that, that does improve their emotional experience of, of their life, even if their circumstances are really awful. They feel seen, they feel your compassion, they feel your empathy. And that is very helpful and, and does yeah, 
is very much appreciated by them. So it's not always about having to change things practically. Yeah, I live in Iowa and we have about 3 million people in the state and about 22 million pigs who are all, mostly all in these conf- animal confinement things and 1,200 of them in a single building. And I, I shudder to think mm-hmm. what, what the morphic field around here <laughs> is mm-hmm. with all those animals in there. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's a whole group in my town that is always actively trying to do something about that situation. Mm. Great, and even for those who aren't in Iowa, you know, we could all just open our hearts and and hold hold those pigs in in their highest selves. You know, thank them for the beings that they are. For thank them for their essential nature. And uh, when that aspect of themselves is consciously tuned in with, they can much more easily cope with their um, personality and physiological experiences of the conditions they live in. Yeah. You know, we mentioned it earlier, and might as well tie up this a little bit so people don't have lingering questions, you know, that you had been a vegan for many, many years, and then you Mm. eventually got to the point where you felt perhaps for health reasons or whatever that you needed to eat some meat. So how did you make that transition? And, and, you know, for someone who says, oh, my God, she eats meat, how could she do that? How would you... you, um, reconcile that with everything else you've said today well what i say to vegetarians is why do you practice cruelty to vegetables (laughs) but the transition was slow and uh, i mean to answer seriously i'm very careful and pedantic about from where my food comes all my food vegetable matter and plant matter so with vegetable matter i only eat organic from local farmers where i know they've the vegetables have been well treated. They've been grown with kindness. They've been regarded with respect and they've been gently harvested. And the same for the little bit of meat that I eat. I make sure that I have been to the places from where they come in the very, very cases of free range. Otherwise, it's literally wild caught. And even then, it is about the hunting practices. Is it more of the sacred hunt? Or is it just that, you know, they're just the very, the very unkind? So it's up for, to each of us to make our own choices within the context of whatever our version of integrity looks like. All we can do is be the best that we can be for wherever we're at and, um, and judge not ourselves or others. Also to listen to our own animal bodies, really listen to our own animal bodies and what forms of sustenance do we need. So I look for vegetables and animals that have had a kind and loving life and an easy transition away from physical life so that they may be recycled into the energy of all. And some would say that that's not only an ethical and compassionate motivation on your part, but that the way a plant or an animal has been treated throughout its life, the way it's harvested or killed, even the way it's cooked and even the consciousness of the cook who cooks Mm -hmm. it, all go into the vibration or subtle influence that it's mm, going to have mm. when it's eaten or, or mm. imbibed. Exactly. Which will then too, you know, yeah. form our, our influence, our makeup and our whole, mm. Our, mm. our mentality, our consciousness. Our, mm. I think that just beautifully summarizes that it's really much less about the what, the what we're eating or what we're doing. It's about the how. How are we being when we're busy with whatever, what in our lives? How? How are we being? Yeah. All right. Well, it's uh, been wonderful talking to you. Really appreciate what you're doing. It's I find it very inspiring, as I think many people watching and many people who will watch do. And as I said, I'll I'll link to a bunch of things that 
people can watch if they want. If they just search for your name on YouTube, they'll find all mm-hmm. kinds of things. But yeah. I'll, I'll link to some of the ones that I that I personally found most interesting and inspiring, mm-hmm. and to your website. And let's say people listening to this and they think, all right, mm-hmm. I want Anna to talk to my dog, or I want Anna to do something about my farm animals or whatever. How do you interact with the public in ways that people listening to this show might relate to or might need as a service from you? I don't do domestic animal consultations at all. And in the last few years, nor farm animals other than right locally. I focus exclusively on wildlife and human wildlife conflict areas and research and conservation projects, which in itself is all pro bono work for free because it's for sanctuaries or organizations or you know, conservation initiatives that, that are not well funded. So How do you support that's, yourself? Um, yeah, very good question. Exhaust myself to the point of illness. <laughs> it's, it's a struggle as a self-employed single person. It, it really is. So I ask for donations via my website for the wildlife work that I do. But the bread and the butter is from the workshops that I, that I run. And I'm wanting to take some time this year to develop online teaching materials. I'm not able to travel internationally at the moment. And the workshops, which is just helping other people remember how to do this themselves, is, is the only way that I earn. And it's also my passion is to have people join in this incredible journey of reconnection. So I'm not available for consultations. I've got a long list of wild animals and interventions waiting for my uh, attention when I, when I can get to them. You run in-person workshops like in South Africa? People could come there for a workshop if they wanted to? Yes, I do run in-person workshops in South Africa, and it's not yet known whether I will ever be able to travel internationally again or not. I've just come through a year of immense physical challenges and uh, have managed to survive physically, which is beautiful. I'm glad you did. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm still in a convalescing phase, so I don't know if I'll be able to travel internationally, but I do run things from time to time within South Africa. There's nothing currently scheduled but there may be something towards the end of the year. Okay. And there will be webinars and other online events. So if people want to subscribe to my newsletter, that would be the best way to be informed of future events when they roll around. And that is simply at my website, which is animalspirit.org. So at animalspirit.org on the homepage, you can subscribe to the newsletter to receive any articles that I may write every couple of months and to be notified well in advance of any workshops including the online workshops that will be developed over the course of the rest of this year. Okay. And if someone is driving their car while they're listening to this, you don't need to pull over and write that down. I'll, I'll, put, <laughs> I'll put a link to that on Anna's page on, on badcap.com. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, Anna. And um, I, I'm glad you pulled through whatever physical challenge you've been through. That might be why I wasn't able to interview you last time I reached out. Um, you might have been going through that. But Hang in there and stay with us for a long time because, you know, what you're doing is wonderful and we need you. Oh, well, it's worth just staying alive for the sheer embodied joy of it, really. It doesn't yeah. have to be for some big purpose at all. <laughs> we're it's all true. here for being exactly who we're being in any moment and all we ever really have is just this moment. Good. Mm-hmm. Well put. All right. Mm-hmm. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Um, next week I'll be in- re-interviewing a fellow named Lincoln Gurgar, who's a very interesting young man. Um, You might want to watch his first interview on BatGap before I do the second one, just so you'll kind of get up to speed on what he's all about. So we'll see you then. And thanks again, Anna. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.